remember living in Russia and then coming home to a communal apartment where three other families and, and a drunk lived, sharing you know two bathrooms and one kitchen, and uh, my family trying to make do with you know 70 rubles a month or whatever it was, and everything was about optimization. I, mean, I still remember being in the United States first time and pe seeing people eat steaks. And my family are very confused. Someone's actually eating that full steak. I mean, you know, in Russia, that would go. There were, that steak would go through many processes of evolution. Frugality is baked into Rob Bernstein's life experience. His family immigrated from Russia when he was a kid, and he used savings from a paper route to start a baseball card business, and that in turn helped pay for his college education. In his mid-30s, after an executive role at Success Factors, a tech company that went public, Rob's entrepreneurial itch became overwhelming, and he used his modest IPO windfall to launch Coupa. Coupa's mission? What else? Help businesses save money through smart software. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to tune in, but there are all kinds of ways. Mainly, I just want you to subscribe so every episode will come to you. Rob and I met at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square to talk about how far Coupa's come. It's now a public company worth $2 billion. And how he got here. Here's Rob Bernstein. I was 14 years old. I had a partner who was, uh, I think, 12. And partner? Partner. Who was 12 right. when that you're 14? Who has a business partner at 14? <laughs> well, a couple of folks that, uh, like he and I who would go to these card shows and we'd see, uh, you know, we'd see dealers buying cards for $10 and selling them for 20 getting a pretty nice margin real quick. And we thought, well, if we kind of hustle hard and we move quickly and we maybe sell a little bit slower price, where we move more volume, we put sets together, we package cards differently, we we uh, serve client needs or customer needs in ways that others weren't by filling their collections for them. We could get an edge and we can make a bunch of money and, and we did exactly that. That doesn't sound like where this business sense started though. You don't like look at, open up your first pass, pack of baseball cards and say, oh, I know, we can separate these and repackage them and you know, mark them up and blah, blah, blah. So where did you get your first taste of business and entrepreneurialism? You know, I was always interested in it because I was born in Russia and we came to the United States when I was six years old. And I remember my folks talking about this system of capitalism where there's an opportunity here that if you work harder and you do things entrepreneurially, you can get an unfair advantage. Whereas you're coming from a communist country where no matter how hard you work, it's, you know, the system sort of keeps you at a certain level pace. So I had always been open to that. And, I, you know, I had a paper route when I was 11 and, you know, I had more. What paper? the Newsday out here on Long Island. Okay. You know, I had more homes that I delivered to than, than the other kids because, you know, around uh, Christmas time, that's when the tips would come and you'd, you'd build up a pretty interesting business that way too. So I was always thinking about, you know, wow, if you work harder, you try to outthink, sort of out-hustle other people that are doing something, you could get a real edge in, in, in this system. And so that entrepreneurial drive was, was really a grounding for me. But I didn't know exactly how to express that until college where as I mentioned, I was getting, I became excited about information technology. You jumped to college, but at 14, you started this, uh, this baseball card business that you said paid for college. So I want to figure out um, how, how, how the mix worked here. So your parents, were they entrepreneurs? Were they into business? What did they think of your paper route? 
They were both uh, engineers, which is really uh, a primary function in, in Russia for folks uh, like themselves, civil engineers, electrical engineers. Uh, they came here, uh, got you know reasonable paying jobs, enough for, to afford for us to, to live and actually to move out to Long Island from, from Brooklyn where we settled initially. They never did anything really entrepreneurial because they didn't have the opportunity to uh, and didn't have the opportunity to take any kinds of meaningful risks because they had to take care of, of you know, our, our ability to survive ultimately, right? But, but they afforded me the opportunity to do that, clearly. Um, and so you, you started this paper route because what? You saw other kids doing it? You were looking for work at how old were you? Sure, I think it was uh, ten and a half or something like that. Sure, I mean, it just it just seemed like a no-brainer. I mean, you see, you see, so who's these kids on bikes and they're throwing these papers? Why are they doing it? Well, because they earn money. Well, I'd like to earn money, so I have a bike and I can go talk to the, the guys down the block and they, you know, sign up to do this and just do it. I mean, it's just a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> it seems seemed pretty obvious to me, right? Uh, and then when you see that, you know, if you work harder and you, and you actually put the paper, you know, between the, the two doors, the kind of the one that protects from flies coming in and the, the shield, right, and, and the regular door, and, and you put it in a, in, a, uh, in a bag rather than throw it on the front lawn, there's a higher likelihood for, you know, more tips and, and all of that. I mean, it's just, it just seemed obvious to me. Is there a modern equivalent of a paper route? I mean, what's a 10-year-old kid going to do today? Well, there's obviously mowing lawns, which I did plenty of as well. Okay, there's yeah. cleaning the, the snow off the driveways. There's uh, all kinds of landscaping things you could do, obviously. Uh, for kids that in today's world are tech savvy, they can help uh, folks that are a bit older set up and get connected to the internet so they can talk to their grandkids, you know, simplify their home connectivity experience, put in new you know, technology inside the, these homes. You know, I mean, I'm not here to promote other technology, but it's obvious, you know, things like Ring and Nest and you know, uh, the products from, uh, from Amazon and others. There's a lot that tech-savvy, thoughtful kids can do to make a buck and, and learn um, how, to be, so how to develop an entrepreneurial mindset. Okay, true, you got me. I, I was heading in a direction and you, it was like you had a, a ready answer. What did you learn from that paper experience? Probably two things. One is obviously the focus on what is it that's of value to a customer ultimately. Not just what they're asking you for, but trying to think one step ahead, what would ultimately be most valuable to a customer? That's What's going to get you that tip? What's going to get you that tip ultimately? Thinking for them. As I mentioned, you know, you're really taking me back now and thought about this for years, but really like I said, I mean, literally putting the, keeping the paper dry, putting it in the right place, getting it out there earlier than the, before the sunset. Back then, you, you, you deliver the papers at the, actually, at the end of the day, right, believe it or not, because <laughs> it's over, right? Yeah. But getting it out there, you know, getting out of school at 2.45, whatever it was, and by 4 o'clock, you were done with the route. The sun hasn't even set. Whenever the, the, the person who's working, or maybe both people, arrive at their home, the paper's already there. I mean, just trying to step, think one step ahead, right? And then taking over more routes and... and over delivering for customers. That's one. And the other is uh, just, I mean, ultimately working harder, just working harder, right? I mean, it's, it's not a, once you have a clear sort of strategy, then it's all execution. You know, you don't pontificate strategy for a long time. Once you're clear on strategy, then it's about execution. And so, um, and that's where a lot of satisfaction comes from, you know, having clarity of purpose, then running at it feverishly, you know. And then baseball cards. Were you into baseball? 
No, but what got <laughs> no, me, not okay. at all, not at all. I obviously never heard of the sport when I was very young uh, in Russia, but it seemed to me like a very American thing. Right. And of course it is. And so as a way of fitting in, it seemed like something to grasp onto at, at age 11 and 12 and others. And you see kids at school trading them. And so you sort of become intrigued with it. And I'm a collector at heart. I like organizing things. Uh, so for collect? me, that was very interesting. What's that? What do you collect? Well, I still collect baseball cards. So I have a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty nice collection of, uh, of cards from many, many of the years that, that I lived and collected them as well as going back into the 70s, 60s, 50s. Yeah. How big did this business get? You know, big enough to pay for, for school, which was not hugely expensive, right? But tens of thousands of dollars. That's so, pretty big for a baseball card business. Yeah. How do you make tens of thousands of dollars with a baseball card business? I can give you a lot of examples. Uh, for example, when sets would first come out, or packs would first come out, my partner and I would get all, get all the local uh, smoke shops, they were called at the time, and buy up every box of, 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 of cards we could find. Then we go home and pull all-nighters, put together sets, and we'd show up at the weekly conference where everyone's kind of wanting to get the new set when the doors open. So we'd get to that conference and we'd buy up all the sets of all the other dealers that had them, and then we'd mark up the prices because we were the only ones that that had those sets. Now, you could call that a monopolistic approach, but maybe just within a very distinct one day of uh, you know Saturday or Sunday of selling it at a conference. So. We charge a premium because we did the heavy lifting. We did the work of putting the full set together, and then everyone walking in would be able to go home that night and have, you know, effectively a card of every player in the in, in the major leagues that year. So that was an example. Uh, many other examples like that, helping others, helping customers fill certain collections they that they wanted. You know, one card of um, of a distinct player from every year in a certain condition delivered for them. We charge a premium for the legwork of putting that together. Uh, going out and finding deals where other dealers at the conference might want to get rid of inventory that's not moving at heavy discount and then repackaging that in different ways. Hmm. So very simple concepts, but they, uh, they really apply to just about everything else I've been doing since, to be honest. Did you think you were saving money for college or what, what was driving you to do it? That was part of it. That was part of it. But, uh, you know, we always had a savings mindset in my family because, you know, we came, when we came to the United States, we had, as my dad tells me, we had about $1,000 in total when we, we got here, a couple of bags and $1,000. So, you know, you, when you're living in Russia, there was no, uh, you have to be thrifty. Everything was about thrifty. Everything was about optimizing whatever you had. So that mindset was, I was really grounded in that mindset. Hmm. So you decided to go where for college? I went, I got into a couple of, you know, uh, sort of more uh, arguably prestigious schools, but I went to SUNY Albany here, uh, upstate New York, uh, which was in a phenomenal education. Um, and I knew I wanted to go into business, but I wasn't sure what area of business. Would I go into accounting or, or finance or some other areas? And that's where I got excited about, about technology programming, to doing entity relationship diagrams, figuring out how data is stored, how to retrieve it, how to effectively massage it on its way in and out of a database, how to uh, do things that, that would automate work. And so what year is that? So that was 91, 92, 93. So pre-web, but the information technology revolution definitely taking off. Yeah, right, business at, right at the beginning. It was very interesting. I remember first seeing eBay and thinking, wow, 
what is this going to do to baseball cards, for example? <laughs> this is unbelievable. And I remember still thinking, yeah, but can we trust it? Can we trust it? And then they first put that star system in there, rating it. I thought, wow, this is it. This is, this is, this, these two concepts are, are phenomenal. I mean, this is going to, this is obviously going to grow massively, right? Uh, first time logging in, when you hear that modem, you know, make all those noises and you first look at it. It was, uh, it was a heck of an experience. But then, then IT, then IT, just getting involved in IT, especially in the business side of things where it just was so arcane to me. Uh, well, the kind of, you know, batch jobs run nightly to move data from one area to another, massage it this way, that way to produce reports that had lagging indicators. Uh, there was just so much opportunity to, to, to kind of do things there and why I chose to go in that area. So did the money from the paper route help you start the baseball card trading business? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And then the money from the baseball card trading business helped you go to college? That's right. That's right. And then after college you went to Anderson Consulting? or I went to Anderson Consulting. Uh -huh. I went to Anderson Consulting and that's where I did this, these projects uh, implementing large-scale SAP. And, mm -hmm. and I'd actually never gotten an apartment here in Manhattan or anywhere else. I was always on the road. <laughs> so that afforded me the opportunity to save money for business school. Right. I remember actually uh, exactly how much I had saved when I when I got to Harvard about 110,000, which is exactly enough to pay for school and get out and go go on to do other things. Um, so so absolutely that 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 experience uh, at at Accenture for four and a half years or so gave me the chance to save up and, and learn a lot, live in France, live in areas of the world, and and, and and learn a lot about this trade. Were you intentionally being frugal and then rolling over the benefit from one experience into another? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Where'd you learn that? Oh gosh, I don't know. I think it's really in, in just what I've always seen. I mean, I remember living in Russia and, and coming home to a communal apartment where three other families and, and a drunk lived, sharing you know two bathrooms and one kitchen, and uh, my family trying to make do with you know seventy rubles a month or whatever it was, and everything was about optimization. I, mean, I still remember being in the United States first time and pe seeing people eat steaks. And my family are very confused. Someone's actually eating that full steak. I mean, you know, in Russia, that would go. There were, that steak would go through many processes of evolution, right? There would be a gravy made out of it. Then there would be pieces for this. I mean, it would go through many permutations of delivering some value for the for the family, right? right. Whereas here, people would, would eat an entire steak. So, so everything was thought through in that way. It was just really core to the mindset. Rob's wife was pregnant with their second child when he told her he wanted to strike out on his own. Not exactly a time when you want to take on extra risk. Why he did it when the Fort Knox podcast continues. This is Fort Knox, and you're listening to my conversation with Coupa founder and CEO Rob Bernstein. How did you gather what you needed to start your own business? Well, for me, what I really needed, particularly after um, those experiences with Accenture, was more about knowledge and the confidence to step into an entrepreneurial venture where I could really mitigate the likelihood of failure. I mean, that for me was the key. I wanted to make sure that I could understand every function, sales, marketing, service, implementation, code. I wanted to understand it from every uh, functional uh, domain perspective. So as we discussed, ERP, CRM, HCM, where I spent a bunch of time. Human capital management. Human capital management, that's right. right. So when I really dove into this area, which is spend management, which I think is one of the big four, those companies only do four things, really, right? They buy things, they sell things, they keep the money, and people are doing it. Those are the four things that are happening, and enterprise software is built around those four entities. 
This fourth one around spending, around managing supplier relationships, around optimizing spend, was one that I went to after having had quite a bit of experience with those other three and having seen different models employed with those other three, from original mainframe to client-server topology to, to cloud. So I thought there's an opportunity here to build a, a very big business if, um, if we could not only outmaneuver initial competitors, but build uh, a pathway to very, very real, measurable, long-term customer value for customers. That, that's what we've been doing. You talk about mitigating risk. What was your first big mistake or you know, moment where you saw your weakness and realized, okay, here's something within me that I need to mitigate? Mm. For me, the biggest area to, to mitigate is personal self-confidence. You know, when you grow up, especially when you enter an environment that's very foreign to you, there's insecurity. You know, I remember I had that internship here at McKinsey uh, just before I went to business school, sort of pre-matriculation kind of associate position because I wanted to explore strategic consulting and get a sense for that. I know a lot of people do that after their MBA. And I remember folks there telling me that, you know, we like to hire super, super intelligent, highly insecure people. I thought, that's very interesting. You like to hire insecure people, so what are you doing here? Are you, are you going to make them secure through the process? <laughs> what, what, what is it going to happen here? So for me, it's, it's... Did they tell you why they wanted to hire highly insecure people? I don't know. I think the value proposition initially when you join an organization like that, where you're traveling, working 20 plus hours uh, a day, uh, you probably have a lot to prove and you're leveraging your intellect as a way to prove it. So perhaps uh, you know someone who's highly self-confident, highly intelligent, um, perhaps wouldn't take that on. Uh, they would maybe focus on other ways to deliver greater share of value for themselves versus mm. getting paid, you know, a tenth or twenty percent of the the fees that that are being kept by the partnership. So for me, that model, just quite candidly, for me, that model, in some ways, um, you know, gives those folks a chance to develop maybe confidence, but during that time gets a, an unfair share of a wallet and working with them, right? Mm. So your impression of that was, um, I need to work on being more secure? Yeah, I want to, my, my security always, uh, as I developed my own self-confidence, the security came from understanding things deeply. Not understanding things at a surface level where if you double click, I'm kind of leaning on somebody else, but able to go down, for example, in technology down to the code level, in implementation down to understanding how configuration works, in sales, understanding the approach to sales that actually works in a given market, to marketing, and all, all elements of marketing, how to price, how to position, how to package. So I really wanted to understand all those disciplines. One of the reasons I spent my own hundred plus thousand dollars on MBA, besides the honor of you know being able to go to Harvard, right? But, uh, but I wanted to really understand these things deeply so that when you do and you step into a high-risk situation of really getting a company going in 2009, 2010, you're up for the challenge. Mm. And, uh, and I really wanted that challenge. You know, I had the opportunity to go to much larger companies and, and take on big roles after my experience with uh, SuccessFactors, a company that we went, we went public uh, here at NASDAQ in 2000. What was your role there? It was head of products, uh, head of product marketing, mm -hmm. uh, and a whole, a whole bunch of other things. We, we, we grew that company for, for about five years from, from a VC office, a Greylock, to, to a public company. Mm -hmm. but, it, but I was really interested in the challenge of stepping into a 2009 type environment and seeing what I could do. Uh, because at that point, financially, at least for me, we're well past anything I ever dreamed of or anticipated. 
And so for me, then it was about, you know, let's see what we can do. So was that the windfall, the success factors, IPO? Is that when you... It wasn't windfall for me. Relative to many other people, it's, it's, it's not a lot of money. It's well, maybe... I'm not talking relative to many other people, <laughs> but I mean... Let's say I could have taken a year off. That's it. Not, okay. not, a, lot of, not a lot. But enough to give you... The, enough to, to say, well, wow, you know, it's time to go do something. It's time to go do something. And part of that is age as well. You know, you're at a certain point where you say to yourself, if I don't do this within three, four, five years, I may not do it. How old were you? Uh, 36. 35 and a half, something like that. So you felt like you needed to do it in your, four, in your 30s? Yeah, yeah. I just had a lot of pent-up energy that I wanted to unleash, and I really didn't want to unleash that in a larger sort of corporate environment where I was one of the members of the management team. I wanted to do that in a place where I could set my own direction and vision. And I also was drawn to the opportunity. I really felt that, and I still feel, that companies really are doing a poor job of leveraging information technology to help them spend money effectively. There's mm -hmm. so much technology. You interview folks all the time that are helping, that are using information technology to help organizations sell more and understand the customer better and target them better and figure out that at this moment they're more likely to buy this product or do the, so much right, energy there. CRM. So much know, energy there. Customer resource management and, and success factors was about more human capital management. That's right. Dealing with the people. That's right. You know, Workday is getting a little bit closer to that, but you saw an opportunity in... The other side of the equation, the, the, the opposite of the, the Salesforce who hold it, the spend side. Right. And my belief is as information becomes more and more and more transparent, the power begins to shift away from those that are trying to sell you something to those that have the choice of how they want to spend their money. So if I could sit on that side and I can give them tools and I can give them insight and intelligence so they could more effectively spend their money wow, we could really build something that's huge. We could build a big, big, big business, particularly with a disruptive cloud model, with a new modern technology stack, with the ability to look at cross-company data and have intelligence provided for each customer. Wow, we could do some really interesting things. Sketch out your risk profile for me at this moment in your mid-30s when you're taking the sleep. Are you single, married, kids, no kids? Married, uh, one child, one child on the way, and I still remember very well my wife. Uh, that's not a high risk that's type right. situation necessarily. That's right, that's right. But as I mentioned, at that point we knew we were safe enough to go a solid year. Uh, I knew that exactly a solid year. And I remember we went to dinner on a Saturday night in, uh, I think it was Castro Street on, uh, in Mountain View, and sat outside, it was warm, and I said, you know what, I think I need to to, to, to take a real leap of faith here and go run into this. I really want the challenge. I really want the challenge. And so... And you say I, this to your pregnant to, wife. I said this to my pregnant <laughs> wife. And uh, to her credit, she supported me there. Because she realized that I was putting the same level of intensity and energy into a job where I was an employee of an organization. Mm -hmm. And she knew that it didn't really matter whether I'd continue to do it that way or to do it my way, and, she, and she's always known that I'm the type of person who, who really wants to lead, and wants to earn the right to lead. Not lead by command and control because I have a title, something like that. I, that's not the reason. Emer emergent leadership is the kind of thing I've always aspired to, mm -hmm. right? Where, where a, group, a group feels that this is the right person to, to, to lead a certain set of you know, activities, right? So she was not blindsided? No, 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 she wasn't. Um, what were your first steps? Well, first up, so to think about spaces that would be of most interest, and this is a, one, as I mentioned, was one that was very interesting to me. Now, what I did was 
I look. So this wasn't like you had the idea and it was a, because some people, you know, Tom Siebel has the idea, thinks about doing it within his current organization, runs into a wall and says, well, I guess I've just got to go do this myself. Right. This was, I need to go do something myself. Right. Let me get an idea. Yes, although the idea was percolating in my mind actually since that McKinsey internship uh, here in, in New York, because at the time we were helping Morgan Stanley with e-commerce strategy. And if you remember in the late 90s, there were a number of companies that were going public, Commerce One, Reba, Vertical Net. Mm -hmm. These companies were hitting incredible <laughs> value. Pro, some that shouldn't have. Well, the, these <laughs> right. But so, that's right. I remember that. I've been told about that one uh, by some of our existing customers. We're actually very happy with what we're doing for them. But they remind me of that. Um, and the, some of these companies were out of control, right? I mean, they, they went to valuations of 30 plus something billion and then came down to, to a billion or something or, or even went under. Mm -hmm. So just like they never should have been that much at the high end, my view was they really, arguably, it, it didn't mean that the opportunity is gone. I mean, the opportunity was always actually quite big there. So I thought, well, it'll take a good decade for all of that, you know, up and down to kind of settle. And then the question is, has the opportunity actually been addressed? And as I talked to companies, friends of mine and organizations, large and small, and I said, well, so how do you, how does your company spend money? I mean, very simple, walk into a queue, walk into office. How do you spend money here on anything? Well, I call someone, I ask my assistant, I call procurement, I write an expense report on this. I, you know, it just seemed like there's, there's obviously commonality of business process, but it's all being done in largely manual ways. In some cases, this is some ERP system, but that's sort of just kind of a system of record there in a bureaucratic way somewhere. So how are we doing this, right? And the best I could see was some of those ERP systems were sort of becoming self-service. They would say, well, we'll expose some of that complexity to you so you could do it. But they looked like Department of Motor Vehicles type sites. <laughs> I mean, nobody wanted to have anything to do with them. So I thought, there's something here. There's something here to, to pursue. And so I'd been working with some development firms at SuccessFactors who helped us build product. And I had them scope for me uh, kind of the sense of what it would take to build. Um, an innovative expense management platform. I look for small technology components out there, um, open source products that were beginning to solve some of these problems. And I met through uh, some, some colleagues, a couple of guys who were beginning this kind of open source product. They were getting going somewhere, they weren't getting any market traction. And so I said, well, why don't we go try to really build something here? And, uh, and joined in uh, this group of folks in February of 2009. Uh, right around the time of that Sequoia deck came out, uh, which said you know, life, things are over. Yeah, R.I.P. Good Times. <laughs> yeah, I that's right. That's right. The deck was that's, titled. That's right. I remember that. That's right. Heck of a time to be starting something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. It's, it was. It was. Uh, it was a good way to start things because you really, you really are forced to think very, very hard about what should be in the product, what should be a value proposition, how do you price this, how do you get at customers. I mean, we would, we would include implementation as part of the service. We built everything around creating recurring revenue right out the gate. We gave customers guarantees early on that if we don't save you this much money by this much time, we'll give you your money back. I mean, we did all mm -hmm. kinds of things. Did you give anybody the money back? We never gave anybody money back because it worked. It <laughs> okay. really worked. Because they From the beginning? From the beginning, from the beginning. I remember well, some of these customers are still with us, that, that the people might have changed, but th th those key customers where we get into, they're with us. They were highly referenceable for us for years. And then for 34 quarters now, we've continued to push into this market, going from small companies to mid-sized companies, and now 
you know, proudly supporting some of the largest companies in the world. I mean, huge multinational organizations standardizing on this product. Uh, to Airbus, to Anheuser-Busch, to, you know, Barclays, and BNS of Railroad. I mean, mm -hmm. the companies like that, Capital One, Caterpillar, something we talked about recently on the earnings call. So we're, um, we're, we're really starting to get past this early adopter phase, which took us a long time, and through the legitimacy of this recent IPO, have really gotten into what we call this uh, early majority of the market, mm. where these, these people are really shifting to us. How soon did you need outside investment? Uh, we had a little bit of money when I got going there, and we raised, I raised around about five months in, and then I raised four rounds after that, <laughs> so almost once a year, and then we did an institutional pre-IPO round and then the IPO. But one thing I'm very proud of on that, and I'll tell you, John, in total we, we burned about 125 million, and we're nearly- Over how long? Over nine years. Okay. And we are nearing 200 million in revenue. 89% of that is recurring. So I like the idea that for every dollar, you know, we've created more, significantly more recurring revenue, and now we've been cash flow positive, trailing 12 months. We're in a good position there. We stayed very tight in terms of our sales and marketing spend over the course of that these 34 quarters, and we've build, been building up this recurring revenue stack one customer at a time, one customer at a time, and then maintaining a very, very strong renewal rate, which is which is a testament to the, to the team of colleagues I have. We have nearly 900 people now in the company, and the team that works hand-in-hand -hand with these customers not to just sell them some product or something, but actually deliver meaningful, measurable, quantifiable value that, that's, that any third party could testify to. If, if, if the person or the people we sold the, the subscription to leave and new people come in, great, let's look at the data. <laughs> this is the ROI, here's what you're getting on an annual basis. Seems, seems like a great equation. And, and we feel like we're, we're still in the very early days of this. I mean, this market is anywhere, you know, it's tens of billions of dollars any way you slice it. This, we've done many different TAM sort of uh, total addressable market slices for investors, uh, you know, anywhere from 19 to 37 billion dollar market opportunity, and we're both taking share from kind of existing incumbent solution providers, as well as developing the market. Mm. Um, are you an investor now in startups? Uh, a little bit, just in terms of where friends uh, ask me for advice, and I could be helpful, or just close friends of mine uh, where, where I would invest a little bit, but I'm not on any boards yet, or I'm not spending any time thinking about things other than what I'm focused <laughs> on. Perhaps at some point I'll consider that, but uh, not, not much yet. What do you tell people who ask you for advice about whether now is the time for them to go off and do their idea, or how to grow it? Well, I'll say two things, typically. One is I do think timing is important. I'm a big fan of entering things at the bottom, so to speak, or entering, you know, buying low, selling high fuel, right? I mean, get in when times are tough because that's when you could develop rigor. I mean, that was very important for me with this. I wanted to take out the trash. I wanted to know where everything was. Mm. I wanted to look at every number. I wanted to have uh, understanding of every vendor relationship. I want to approve every hire, which I still do, by the way. So I wanted to have all of that, that, that level of insight to what's happening. And I think you need the pressure of tough times to learn that rigor. So, and, and by the way, if you enter within that tough time and you execute very, very aggressively, 
by the time things get better, you're likely to have a significant lead over anybody else that comes at your opportunity. And if you could build barriers to entry and moat around your business and do all the logical things that protect what you have, then you could really uh, get a huge advantage over the others. So that's one. But then the second thing I always say is it's a personal decision. It's really a personal decision. You know, I still remember because I was in human capital management for some time, going to an HR conference, and they were interviewing uh, Jeff Emmel. Mm-hmm. And former CEO of GE. Of GE, that's right. And, and the reporter asked him, so what's it like you know, over running a 300,000-person company? And, and I thought he'd answer it uh, in a way that talked about time management or having lieutenants or something external. And his answer was very memorable to me. He said, running an organization like this or being responsible, having this level of responsibility is a deep exploration into yourself. <laughs> I thought, wow, wow. And and what that to me said was a lot of these things are personal experiences the right time is the right time for that particular person for me it was 35 for some it may be when they're you know dropping out of college right and for some it's in their 60s right look you know as far as we know we have one life so figure out what it makes sense <laughs> for you is what I, the advice that i give my thanks to rob bernstein i'm john fort from cnbc and this has been fort knox rich ideas and powerful people Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook, Periscope, and Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There, I'll tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC. And from you, just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox, or go to Facebook and search for John Fort, and you'll figure out what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.